you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Friday morning. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer and David Faber coming to you live from separate locations, which is probably familiar to everyone by now. As a precaution, <laughs> stocks are trying for the first back-to-back gains in about six weeks. Futures are up, although well off the overnight highs, as we see more historic Fed buying, a GOP relief package, uh, huge mitigation efforts in California today, and a second day of no new reported cases in China. Guys, uh, TGIF, uh, for one thing, uh, Jim, it's clear, though, that uh, even though we had some constructive things happen tactically yesterday, it sounds like you don't expect this bounce to last for long. Well, we're the most oversold we've ever been. Uh, it, I guess you could go back. Some people say, uh, just get some great stuff from, um, from Mr. Williams, who's one of my absolute favorite technicians. Larry Williams, everybody uses him. I just want to point out because he's done work which says, going back to 1933, this is one of the most extreme panics ever, and he wants to buy panics. On the other hand, you come back and you say, well, who's there to buy? Uh, I really feel, feel that we're due for a bounce. Uh, there are a bunch of buy recommendations today. I just don't know how much money there is around there to buy more stock. And I think that uh, the liquidity is the concern in every aspect of finance. At the same time, anytime you skip over the public health issues, you forget that right now the uh, strapped in San Francisco, strapped in Boston, strapped in New York, maybe the chief issue that we have to deal with. There's just not enough equipment. The, the nightmares occurring. So what do we make then of Stiefel uh, looking for a 15 percent rally by the end of April? Gunlack, of course, yesterday saying no longer net short for the first time in years. Scott Minard today, we're in the value zone. You mentioned the slew of upgrades, which we'll get to. But why are these uh, why are there these little pockets of I won't call them optimism, but uh, bullishness to well, some degree? Well, I don't know. Carl. I mean, somebody called yesterday in the lightning round and asked me about made money about Wendy's. And I looked Wendy's was at six and it went to nine, six. I mean, a lot of companies have been pri- are priced for insolvency or at least were two days ago. And I think what happened is, is that when we got to those levels, people said, you know, let's just take a flyer. And now we're back to levels where we think maybe if the economy gets restarted, a lot of these buys are, you know what, we got to start thinking about when things get better. Here's what we have to do. I don't mind that thinking. It's just the problem is, is we're not getting Getting better. I still think we're getting worse uh, as we get more uh, knowledge of things. One of, one of the most informed discussions I watched last night was on Facebook when uh, Mark Zuckerberg was interviewing Dr. Fauci. And we're still trying to get our arms around the idea that the younger people are infecting the older people. Uh, we're not yet at all geared for what happens when the older people uh, go to the hospital and there's not enough ventilators. So, I mean, those are the stories that are going to define this weekend. And I don't think they make it so that you want to buy against that, it is the most oversold again that it's ever been in terms of the record keeping. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely, you don't see the credit problems in the stock market. I know David's following the credit side. The credit side is really a mess. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, you've got so many different issues, as you know, Jim, including, of course, as you said, liquidity. It's a mess in some areas. You know, Jim, to your point, right now when I speak to bankers or management teams or those who are advising them, 
uh, it's just survival mode. That's yes. what we're talking yes. about right now. Figuring out what we need to do to make sure we survive, to make sure we get through whatever this interregnum is. And of course, that's one of the key questions and variables. We just don't know how long. And nobody can seemingly answer that uh, definitively at this point. I guess as we get closer and closer to it, we'll actually know when we're there. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's things that we know have to happen. Test, 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 because we got to get people back to work. If we don't test them, we don't know if they're healthy. If they're healthy, they got to go back to work. That's something we need to create some demand in the system. Uh, take Boeing as being the paradigm when it comes to corporate America where there is demand. All they really want is liquidity. Now, you can say, well, if they're greedy, you want liquidity. People want to seem to punish already. Can we just at least get them the liquidity? And then there's this other deadweight part of the economy, which is uh, the huge service economy that is driven by hotels and restaurants and retail. And there, I I don't know. I mean, there's the black hole of the system. And people are talking about a trillion dollars. That's a nice wishful thinking number if we're able to get uh, the malaria pills and they really work or the Regeneron uh, drug works or the Gilead drug works. Otherwise, I think one month is fanciful and trillion dollars is tiny. Yeah, Jim, uh, 60 minutes on Sunday. Go ahead, Carl. (laughs) Uh, 60 Minutes on Sunday uh, is going to take a look at the race to develop uh, not just treatments, uh, but vaccines as well. I think they're going to pay a visit uh, to uh, the first clinical trial. Jim, yesterday on Twitter, I mean, uh, this was uh, jarring to me. You said, I don't want to be too dire, uh, but one of them better work. You're referring to Gilead and Regeneron because uh, we cannot shut down the country for months. And then you got this journal op-ed today, Jim. Uh, the costs of the shutdown are growing. Maybe treatments come faster than expected, but barring that, our leaders will very soon need to shift the strategy to something that is sustainable. Right. I think that that's the debate. We have to we have to decide. I mean, literally, uh, look, there's triage like everybody, obviously, who is over 80 in Italy. And they also, by the way, there's another strain of it over there. that's far worse than the strain we hear about. But every over over 80, it looks like they're being triaged and that's who's dying. So you have that side. But on the other side, you have this interesting. In other words, we could be like Italy and it may not even be an issue. We have to do all public health. The other side is how many people's lives uh, will be wrecked and the tension, the pain, the suicide, the horror, the heart attacks that will be caused literally by the fact that people are out of work and they've they've depleted all their savings versus the people who need the hospital beds to be able to get the drugs. And do we triage the people who are in the hospital who are north of 80, like we do, like they're doing in Italy, and then put the rest of the country to work? And as people get to work, we test them. And if they're healthy, we put them back. And if they're not healthy, uh, then they get they have to go home. Until we find out whether the uh, the combination of the uh, Plaquenil, which is the hydrochloroxine, and the ZPAC, which is the test in France, it's a very small study, and that definitely shows things are working. So you need the scientific side to be as optimistic, but also be realistic. And then you need someone in the, in the White House uh, or in Congress to say, you know what, Do we have, or is there too much damage putting the country out of business? Uh, Real health, uh, health right. damage, not just right. money, but health. Right. And that's a very hard call. I'm, I, 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 you, know, you need to be a, a, someone who's much more of a, let's say, a philosopher than an economist or a, a doctor. Yeah. No, Jim, you're raising an interesting point. And when we discussed a bit yesterday as well, as I hear rising cries of people saying, you know, they're more worried about a collapse in the economy yes. than they are from the virus itself and how you actually balance those two over time. And when we look back, did we make the right decisions? One, of course, poorly executed, not decision, but series of events is is the lack of testing. And I don't know if you watch those press conferences the way we all the way I do. 
Um, but I am well aware that testing is still not where it should be, that there are doctor's offices in New York who are administering tests last weekend and people still do not have results and are now being told it will be until next week, which more or less defeats the entire purpose of having the test in the first place, given the incubation period will already have almost expired while you're waiting for the test results. So, so right. this idea right. that somehow we're immediately able to get test results doesn't seem to be taking place in the real world, not to mention all the different anecdotes we see of hospitals that are low on equipment and trying to make do with whatever they have. I mean, we've got to deal with those things. And then let's hope that they can figure out an antiviral and get it into people's hands quickly enough so that it can lower the fatality rate and allow everybody to take a deep breath. Yeah, I look at testing is probably the ultimate hope for the economy, barring uh, the giant breakthrough when it comes to science. And one of the things that Len Schleifer is obviously we talk about Regeneron, they're clearly uh, maybe the most focused on trying to get something done right here. They need testing to see if someone's currently infected with the virus. That's been what's talked about publicly. And then maybe important, they need, they need testing to see if someone already had the virus and has recovered. That's a different set of testing. They can't do the say just one test. There's been no public discussion of this. And this is the standard serological test that will help people feel confident they can get back to work. So, I mean, that's something that the president could say, you know what, we need two tests. We need the test that shows you that you've gotten over it and there you should be at work. And that's what you would do. You'd say that person should be at work. And then we need to see the test, obviously, if you have the virus and that person has to stay home. We need absolutely people to go back to work and in a responsible way, because without it, we have no demand. And then we have to put paychecks into the uh, hands of people who work in restaurants, hotels, the usual. So, Jim, that that story is going to change beginning next week uh, as all of those test kit makers that we've been showing you on your screen start rolling out tests in the hundreds of thousands. And we're going to see that uh, that numerator, that denominator uh, rise. So is that going to be a a positive story market wise or not? Well, I I think that there'll be people who will shrewdly say, you know what, this is positive because we're finally getting our arms around it. I I don't know if the stock market is going to be that savvy about that. I'm really mindful of the day a couple days ago where uh, a little company like G3 uh, drops to two and change after being at seven uh, and then reports an unbelievable number and goes back to seven the next day. I mean, there's a lot there's going to be a lot of lottery tickets like that again. But I I just think when these numbers come out, people are going to say, you know what, I, I have my money in my 401k. And I'm 57. I'm 67. I don't, I don't know. Whatever age. I got to take that down. And I have to take it down because I'm running out of money. And while they talk in Washington about punishing the new CEO of Boeing in order to give him money, what they really have to do is give me money. And it's, there's not enough. I mean, a trillion dollars is a very small thing. I mean, that's like saying, you know what, we need four aircraft carriers. You know, maybe we need like 30 aircraft carriers. So it, without analogies to World War II, we're really kind of uh, thinking way too small. This is not Desert Storm. This is not the Korean War. It's World War II. And we, we want to be able to save the economy. We want to have a, to be a mission that it, mission-driven government, which is basically saying we got to get the testing done. We got to get the vaccines on the road, which we do. We have to get the uh, something, the monoclonal antibodies, uh, to test, 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 those uh, whatever trials there are, and then put money in the hands of people where, who work in industries where there's no demand, uh, like Danny Myers' industry, the restaurant industry. That's uh, well said, Jim. Uh, in fact, let's bring in Danny Meyer right now of uh, Union Square Hospitality Group. Uh, Danny, it's great to have you on. We appreciate your time. Uh, it's sad to say, but I think we all have a sense right now of uh, what's happened to business in the past 
couple of weeks, essentially going to zero. You made an early decision to close. And since then, you've announced plans where if you buy a gift card, all of it goes to your employees. So I'll ask you uh, for a characterization of, of what's been happening, but also your best ideas for solutions right now. Yeah, first of all, the conversation you guys are having is really, really helpful. It's it's um, it's this two-pronged issue, you know, with 9-11, for example. Once we got over the just emotional um, trauma of what had happened, at least our industry could stand up and feed uh, first responders. We could feed families. We could encourage the public to come back and and stimulate the economy by going out to eat and also stimulate the emotional uh, well-being of of society by being together in restaurants. And we don't have that tool right now because there's there's no green light that says it's time to go back to work and therefore it's time to go back to eat. And we cannot wait to be in that position. But it's truly right now as, as if the entire restaurant industry, which, by the way, there are 600,000 restaurants in America. And, you know, we think about huge industries like uh, airlines and, and automobile uh, manufacturers as well we should. We don't often think about restaurants because there are so many independent ma-and-pa restaurants that you don't necessarily know about uh, how many there are. But when you, when you multiply 600,000 restaurants – and you say, if on average each one of those restaurants only had 100 workers or 50 workers, you can see the magnitude of the problem in terms of people's employment, in terms of products that are not getting bought and sold. And I would say, you know, a, a running theme throughout your conversation has been the emotional, the fear part. Hospitality uh, is a word whose root is hope, which is the opposite of fear. And, and one of the real reasons besides employment, that we can't wait to get back to cooking for people and welcoming people to restaurants is that people being with people is hope. And that's really been one of the, the real tragedies of what's been going on. So what do we need? Well, first, we got to recognize, as, as you've said, that this is a two-pronged issue. It's safety and health. Got to keep people alive or all bets are off. And then it is rebuilding people's lives. And I would start with the people themselves, even before the businesses. It sure would be good if the government would freeze the obligations mm -hmm. and the cost structures that, that, uh, that businesses have. For example, rent, for example, taxes, for example, every single one of the expense lines that restaurants have. It would be good to just freeze that. But I would actually spend more of the money taking care of the workforce because a lot of the people that work in our industry work on a day-to-day, -day, a week-to-week, -week, uh, certainly not more than a month-to-month -month basis. And we want to make sure that our workforce has been fed, has been uh, has a roof over their head, and, and is healthy by the time we need them back. And, and by the way, I am amongst the hopeful. Um, I don't know when it's going to be, but whenever we do get the green light that it's safe to come back to work, keep in mind it's going to take a good month or so to recruit our teams back and to get them trained before we can serve uh, the way we used to. Yeah. Be because because uh, operations will have changed so much. Operations will have changed, but you know when you lay off, uh, in our case, 2,000 people, which we had to do this week, 
because we want to live to to fight another day. And and if we're not around because we're insolvent, what good will we have been to them? So if 80% of our workforce is now gone, uh, yeah, we're trying everything we possibly can to stay in touch with people via Zoom calls, via via emails, via our intra-company communications, but they're gone. And, And it's, you know, imagine... Imagine spring training for a, a baseball season where on March 1st, instead of the teams starting their month of spring training so that they could start the regular season, imagine if the general managers of the teams had to start recruiting on March 1st and, and creating spring training at the same time. It's just going to extend it. I'm not complaining about that. I'm just trying to, to share a dose of reality. And, and I loved what uh, I think it was Jim who said, that uh, as soon as as soon as we can start to say who can come back to work, who for whom is it safe to come back to work, I know that we will start to see some green shoots in our industry because the minute we hear that, we're going to put people to work. We're going to start by cooking for for people in our company. We're going to then start to cook for people in our community. And yeah, it'll be it won't be restaurants where you gather. It'll start off by being takeout and, and curbside pickup. But we can't even do that uh, in our company safely right now until we hear that that people can come to work without without fear. Oh, Danny, you're so right. And of course, I enjoyed my the last night I was happy, Danny, was my 65th at, Moder- at Moderna. Thank you so much for always being, <laughs> hey, no, but, you know, Manhattan, not Moderna. That's the, the uh, it's a vaccine company. Danny, you are doing two things that people aren't talking about. One is you're actually helping your workers. Uh, and then second, you're getting rid of your uh, pay. Uh, I think that that is incredibly selfless and, and you've got to be appreciated for that. I think that one of the problems that America has right now is they feel that the bosses, the managers are going to be the winners and the workers uh, are the losers. You're trying to do both. My restaurants, Dan, I, I'm struggling. I mean, we've, we laid off. Uh, we laid off people early on Monday. I think that I don't know if I have the wherewithal. Well, I think a lot of restaurateurs don't have the wherewithal to reopen, Danny. And I think you could, should speak to the notion of the capitalization of most of the people because it is a shoestring industry. You build a great empire. You know, you're built on hospitality. But can you speak to the industry where they don't have any pay to take in terms of bosses uh, and they don't have any uh, 1099 employees can't get a, a, some sort of payroll tax cut? The unreal nature of how little Washington knows about our industry. Well, I think you nailed it, uh, Jim, because and this is what I was trying to say earlier, because we are such a disaggregated industry. Uh, and it's one of the great things about restaurants is how many entrepreneurs got into the business, how many employees got their first or second or third ever job in our industry. It's something I'm really, really proud of. But we don't necessarily speak with one voice. And I think that the independent restaurants in this country are finally coming together. I was on two or three calls yesterday with a lot of independent restaurateurs who were basically saying, how can we have a voice and and how can we let Washington know uh, that that this is a massive, massive part of the economy. I think Andrew Ross Sorkin's uh, notion of one size fits all in terms of, of government support is an interesting one that we should look at. Um, I want to make sure that our industry doesn't get lost. And look, with respect to my compensation, that works for me 
it doesn't necessarily work for most other restaurateurs. And I never, ever would want to suggest that that is the way that an independent restaurateur should go because, uh, you know, it's, it's tough times. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough for employees, but it's also tough for people who have taken such responsibility for, for hiring people and putting a lot of people in the workforce who, who are now stuck with the bills. Um, you know, I haven't seen a lot of landlords stepping up and saying, we're going to stop charging you rent. I haven't heard a lot of utility companies saying, we know that you have no income, but we're not going to charge you uh, for gas and electricity in your restaurants uh, until this thing is over. And so we need everybody to step up right now. This is this is an economic and safety wartime effort right now. I think we all recognize that. I want to put in a plug in for one other thing. You guys have over the last five years or so, um, been amongst the people that asked uh, asked me and others about the wisdom of eliminating tipping in our restaurants. And if ever there were a time where I, I feel like that decision is is actually being reinforced as a good thing, for the hourly workers on our team who face unemployment as of this week, when they go to the unemployment line, their compensation that they can show on their W-2 because they were not paid the adjusted minimum wage, but were paid uh, a wage that uh, that accepted the fact that there was no tipping. So it was way above minimum wage. That makes me feel a little bit validated for the decision that we made five years ago to eliminate tipping. Yeah, Danny, uh, I look forward to the day we can have a discussion again about about the tipping policy when all the restaurants are open. But um, and a discussion right now about forbearance up and down, which we've been talking about in terms of not having to pay your bills. But take me out when we are through this, however many months it may be, when we do get to the other side. What are your expectations for what it's going to look like in terms of how many restaurants are able to reopen and whether or not behavior in some way is going to be forever changed amongst people in terms of their willingness to socialize in the same way and patronize restaurants at the same frequency? Well, I think people are resilient, and I, I really think that human beings are a very social creature, social animal. And that's one of the reasons that restaurants play such an important role. Just, again, think about what we've all been looking forward to. We were in the process of planning graduation lunches and dinners and Easter and and weddings that got canceled uh, for June and, and all the kind of reasons that people come together just to celebrate uh, friendship. That's, that's not going to go away for those restaurants that survive. But here's what I would say. Even before this, our industry for the last, I'd say, five or six years has absolutely been moving in a direction where because the quality of food available in fast casual and fine casual <laughs> restaurants has and, and with delivery and takeout has been on the rise anyway, even without this. And so when we come back, and we will, people are going to keep eating. That's, that's a good thing. People are not going to stop eating. And then the question is, where will they be getting their good food? And, and I'm going to bet right now that we will see fewer full-service restaurants than the number that we went into this with, and we'll start to see even more uh, acceleration in the trend that had already started with really good food that is available uh, to be served uh, as takeout, as pickup, 
quick service. Um, I think that's going to be a really, really good category, and I cannot wait. I think that uh, autumn of, of this year should be an exceptionally good time in our industry because there's going to be so much pent-up demand to be with people. But again, it all starts when some higher authority turns on the green light and says, it's first of all, it's safe to go to work and it's safe to go out to eat. Right. Uh, to that point, Danny, uh, Fauci's on the Today Show this morning, and I'll quote here on how long Americans will have to stay at home. Uh, going to be several weeks. I cannot see that all of a sudden next week or two weeks from now it's going to be over. I don't think there's a chance of that. I think it's going to be several weeks. You know, we keep talking about this idea of uh, workers needing a place to go back to uh, once they get the green light. So for you, you must have run some models that has a date that says if it goes past this date, there will be no Union Square for us to rehire to. Well, what we're looking at is a little bit more optimistic than that, Carl. And, and so we're now down to 150 employees in my company. And I can't I mean, I don't think I've been able to say that for uh, probably 25 years. Uh, since Union Square Cafe was my only restaurant right before opening Gramercy Tavern. And those 150 people are tasked with building a bridge to the day that the sun is shining again. And what does that bridge look like? The bridge looks like creating opportunities for revenue for our company that are safe as of that moment. If in two months, if in one month, we still have not gotten the green light that it's safe to cook food for people, even on a to-go basis or even on a pickup basis. And I think we, we will find a way to do that. Um, as a matter of fact, we already have a, a skeleton crew uh, who is cooking food right now for a contract that we have uh, with another business where we are obligated to do that. Very, very small crew doing that. But that bridge could look like some entrepreneurial opportunities that maybe we haven't thought of today. You know, we have kitchens. Those are assets. We have we have really, really good chefs. We have really good wine directors. Maybe we'll create a broadcast network, not to compete with you guys, but maybe we'll maybe we'll be able to team in uh, cooking lessons or wine lessons. One of the things the government has said we can do is safely sell alcoholic beverages off premise. We've never been able to do that before. Maybe we'll create USHG TV. I don't know what we'll do, but I promise you. We're going to find some way to create revenue as a bridge, even before we get to uh, the time that I keep calling the green light, where we can all come back to work and do what we love doing, which is cooking great food and bringing people together. It's just crazy that the thing we love doing is now the thing that we just can't do. And, and so we're looking for ways to bring hope back to back to our society. Danny, our thoughts are with you. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your views with the viewers this morning. Uh, they need to hear it. Thanks. Thank you all. Danny Meyer. Let's get a coronavirus uh, news headline update this morning with Rahel Solomon. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Carl. So cases around the world are now rising above 246,000. More than 10,000 people have died. In Italy, a country of 60 million, cases topped 41,000, and the death toll is now more than 3,400. That surpasses China, which has a population over 20 times larger. Today, Spain became the second country in Europe to report more than 1,000 people have died. Officials there warning that the healthcare system could soon be overwhelmed. Here in the U.S., confirmed cases stand at over 14,000, and 205 people have died. 
And within the last hour, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo tweeting that the New York tri-state area and Pennsylvania will extend mandatory business closure. So this now includes hair and nail salons, tattoo shops and other services starting Saturday night at 8. Out west in California, cases jumped 21 percent in 24 hours, prompting Governor Gavin Newsom to issue a stay-at-home order for the state's 40 million people. That order is until further notice and requires all dine-in restaurants, bars, clubs, gyms and entertainment venues to close. So as businesses such as those and many more close in California and across the country, layoffs mount. State unemployment offices reporting unprecedented spikes in initial jobless claims. Federal data points to a 33 percent increase in claims over the last week. Goldman Sachs in a note predicting that for the week ending March 21st, claims could be in the millions. In other words, the largest increase ever and perhaps highest level on record. David, I'll send it back to you. Yeah, thank you, Rahel. Those numbers conceivably are, as you point out, the likes of which we will have never uh, seen. All right, let's get back to actually talking stocks for a moment uh, in the two minutes we have or so before we get an opening bell. Jim, I'm taking a quick look at my screen in terms of stocks that are up for the year, just what I've got here. Tesla's up, uh, Netflix is up, Eli Lilly is up, Gilead, of course, is up. And there's one more name that's up for the year, and that's your mad dash. Take it away. Right, Amazon. People are out of their uh, bunkers. The analysts have been waiting, I think, for one update to be able to say some good things. And what's remarkable is there's just a chorus of people saying you got to buy Amazon that the world has changed forever, that people realize that they can buy uh, many more things on Amazon than they thought. I mean, I got, I got home last night. There were four packages from Amazon that my wife ordered. I mean, we, we, all sorts of things that we would just normally have just gone down the street to a Rite Aid or Walgreens. Uh, and, and why? Because we don't want to be where there's crowds. And so Amazon is the anti-crowd retailer. By the way, Amazon and Walmart both announced hiring. Walmart announced a spectacular bonus plan. You know what I think these have to do? Uh, David, we come out of this uh, sooner than other small businesses can open. If we come out of this later, David, there's going to be three retailers in this country. There's going to be Amazon, there's going to be Walmart, and there's going to be Costco. Uh, and that is something that the government cannot afford to have happen. If it comes out that those are the three, can you imagine, David, what it means for this country to just have three retailers? No, no, it would not be a good thing uh, in so many different ways, Jim. Uh, and... You're right. They are dominant already and certainly cementing that dominance conceivably, given these highly unusual conditions in which we find ourselves. Carl, we got an opening bell over to you. All right, David, uh, let's uh, let's get to the bell. Final day of trading at the New York Stock Exchange for the week uh, before they go all electronic. And next week, Tom Green is the VP of Building Operations at the NYSC. Bob McCooey is the global head of capital markets at the Nasdaq gym, uh, you know, in terms of today's activity, quad which will make things interesting. Oil's been swirly today, as the Russians say we don't need anyone to intervene in our Saudi relations. After the president said yesterday that um, there was opportunity, perhaps it's hard to know exactly what he meant in terms of uh, restoring some stability to oil. Yeah, it is interesting. The president talked about filling the petroleum reserve last Friday. I know in some conversations I have with, with uh, administration, there are people who are starting, it's starting to dawn on that under $30, we might lose our energy independence. This morning, Rusty Brazil from RBN does the best work on oil, says that we are still going to pump 13.1 million barrels a day. And that is the exact opposite of what the Russians want. 
Uh, we just seem to not know how to I mean, we've cut back, say, 40 percent in our CapEx budgets for our oil companies. They don't know how to pump. Now they're pumping from their highest grade uh, areas in the Permian. A lot of areas are completely unprofitable, but it's going to keep the business, keep them in business if they can get it north of 30. So I think the president's trying to figure out at what level do the people uh, say he's not doing a good job in keeping costs down. Uh, we've, seen, we've seen gasoline below a dollar in some places versus keeping this industry alive. This aerospace and oil are the two industries that are most keeping our nation in, uh, competitive and making it so that we're strong. And those are the ones that are on the red hot griddle. One call from the president to Saudi Arabia just says, listen, we're not going to protect you unless you let oil float to 30. We'll keep a lot of our oil companies, not all of them, but a lot of them in business. That's the break even. 30. You've got to get there. If not, then what you're going to see is a huge number of bankruptcies. We haven't even talked about that. I know David's focused on it, too. The bankruptcies are going to start in two weeks, and they're going to be stark, and they're going to be frightening to people. So the government has to get ahead of this, and they've got to get ahead of it on aerospace, on oil, on restaurant and retail, and on hotel. Yeah. Oil reversed. Um, oil reversed. Oh, darn it. Uh, you know, Jim, Jim, you're right. I mean, the restructuring is, you know, that is where there is a great deal of focus right now, as you say. Um, right. uh, and it's, you know, listen, my old world of, uh, of mergers and acquisitions, you've got so many different people focused on what deals will actually close and what deals will be renegotiated, what deals will fall apart, whether the banks will be there to fund or not, whether they will claim material adverse changes even if there wasn't necessarily something particular about a pandemic in the contract that allowed for it. Um, We're just at the beginning of that process, the beginning of so many firms being hired to obviously advise on restructuring. It will be an important component of revenues if you want to look at it that way, certainly for the advisory firms that are out there, a significant change from the fairly good pace that we'd seen previously in advising on all sorts of other transactions that had little to do with the course restructurings or bankruptcies. Yeah, David, if hey, there's guys, no activity, what happened? I'm sorry, Carl, go ahead. No, I was just going to point out on David's point about uh, investment grade, uh, the LQD uh, down 10% uh, in September of 08, this month down 20. To double the 08 decline on investment grade. And then, of course, you had Gunlack, David, yesterday saying that he thought uh, the reason in IG went down more than junk is uh, could be redemptions, but could be the market does not expect many of these ratings to stay IG. No, uh, but, you know, there's this question, of course, and Jim Casey uh, raised it with us. Uh, I guess it's last week. It's hard to keep track from uh, J.P. Morgan, co-head of investment banking. This idea that when you get that wave of downgrades, the high yield market, Carl, is not in a position to really handle that kind of volume. Uh, high yield is closed right now from new issuance. But just in general, you know, the, vo- the difference in dollar amount from IG to, to high yield is vast. And that's also a, a key question that we sort of got to keep an eye open for as we watch the credit markets and how they're operating uh, at this point. Um, it's an important component overall of all the different markets. Yeah, David, it, this is something that the president, uh, with one phone call to the Saudis, would take off probably about $300 billion in high yield trouble. Uh, now, those a lot of the oil and gas, you get a Chesapeake. I mean, it's obvious how much debt they have and what they look like. But I think the president has to be focused on what can be done with phone calls today 
uh, get oil up a little, take that off the table, get the testing done, give the credit line uh, some sort of line to Boeing because there's 17,000 suppliers and 2 million people involved with that. Pick a couple of industries, save those industries, then put money in the hands of the people whom they've killed demand for. I mean, if you own a restaurant and you're you're told to shut, why don't you get the business interruption that that Secretary Mnuchin talks about? And then get out there. Get out there like, like Fauci. I mean, Fauci's everywhere. I mean, he's on Barstool. He's in Facebook. Get out there, right? I mean, get out there. Look, we probably want, I mean, you want a simple solution. If you're over 60, don't go to work. If you're under 60, go to work. Test, test, test. But the president has to come up with some simple Ronald Reagan-like totems. And, I mean, I'm not going to instruct the president. The president's never going to listen to me or anyone else, for that matter. But I think it's very simple. you got to make the call to the Saudis. you got to talk about how we're going to ramp up with testing. And you got to do a mea culpa. Just do it for the nation. Just say, like Fauci did yesterday, we talking to Mark Zuckerberg. Well, we didn't get all the, we didn't have it all right. And by the way, the Fauci to Zuckerberg, I mean, can you believe we're even talking about this? And, by the way, Dr. Fauci, I love no, you. should I, stop playing Jim, with the, what was he playing with, the cough drop or something? You're, you're absolutely right love on Fauci. Fauci on the Today Show again. Here's here's what he said. Uh, we're rapidly getting to the point where we will hit where we will have many many tests out there available for virtually everyone. This is Fauci this right. morning on Today. Uh, early on, it was not that way. It should have been, uh, but we're really now very much in the right direction, flooding the system with it. Look at so that's that. constructive. Look at that. Look what he did. And then one sentence, here's the 79-year-old man with the Regis, by the way. For those in, in the New York uh, school system know that that's a great school. Uh, okay, so what does he do? First, he admits that, he did, that they did something wrong. I like that because it's called humility. Second, what he says is we do have hope here. We are gonna get these, the, we're going to get these tests to you. Obviously, he makes no false promises, so he must be talking to Roche. And he must, must be talking to, to uh, Thermo uh, uh, Scientific because Thermo Fisher does have the tests. And then third, what he says is here's a little time frame. You know, we're going to get this to you in this time. But the best thing he did uh, on Facebook was right at the end, and I think the whole reason why he did it, was he said, hey, listen, younger people, we know you think you're immortal. I was immortal when I was that age. Will you stay away from your parents and grandparents? 60, go home. Don't get near these, uh, the uh, callow youth. And under that, you go to work and we'll promise to test you. Simple totems. The president has to learn how to be able to give hope without being false hope. I'm instructing the president I don't give a damn. And then he has to be able to understand that <laughs> Eisenhower, Reagan, these were FDR. Simple truths. Rocks. Rocks of truth. And that's how you do it. And, and, and you got to do it that way or else all we do is say, rem No. Simple truths. <laughs> and we're too late in the game to not say this stuff. All right? I'm not going to like, go back. Am I going to get a phone call? Yeah. You know, my mom's going to be angry at me. We gotta say, i got to tell the guy you're, how you're, to do this thing. I'm tired yeah, of the, yeah. I'm tired uh, of the guys, way they're doing it. Uh, one small piece of, I'll call it good news, David. Uh, China buying 756,000 metric tons of U.S. corn, the first major purchase under phase one. When's the last time we talked about phase one other than uh, fiscal relief? Yeah, that's funny. I mean, remember when trade was the greatest single threat to our economy or the the trade war, so to speak, with China? Uh, Don't we all long for those days? Uh, Guys, (laughs) listen, China's it, China's starting up again. We know that. Yep. In fact, it's funny. Yesterday, I also had a, a conversation with somebody who advises on deals where the Chinese are actually buying from Latin America uh, and from South America. And that's starting up because, of course, also you need to get the ships ready to go and things of that nature. So they are starting to come back into the market 
for commodities, Carl, you pointed out, of course, in terms of some of the purchases that will take place here as a result of the new agreement. Uh, but around the world, the Chinese are starting to buy again. That is a good sign, certainly. We don't know what the numbers are going to look like out of China in terms of what their economy has gone through. And guys, I still just am stunned when I look at some of the numbers that are estimated here, whether it's J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs, for what we're going to look like in the second quarter in terms of the downturn. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like those numbers. No. Um, one hopes we don't realize them. You know what they're buying, David? Uh, guys, they're buying. I know it's going to my source. They're buying what we're about to talk about. They're buying airplanes from Boeing. Uh, yeah. I mean, let's talk about Boeing, Jim. Squawk did a pretty extensive uh, coverage this morning about Haley's departure from the board, uh, her potential motivations for that. What do you think? She wants to be president. It's okay. People want to be president. They got to get off the board and be able to say, you know what? I stood up to the fat cats. Of course, unfortunately, people who do well are fat cats in this country. But, yeah, I think she wants to run for president. Nice, it was really good grandstanding. I mean, some of the best I've seen during this whole period. Better, by the way, she's holding up better than some of these guys. Senator Kelly Loeffler, what a buy. Did you see the buy she made? Of, she got the Citrix near the pretty good buy of the Citrix. These are some uh, uh, senators who've been very active in their trading. It's kind of when I look at what they've been doing, it's kind of like watching the Jerians. You know, it's like unusual trading activity. They're right in there selling the hotel stocks. Good for them. Nikki Haley, tremendous grandstanding. Meanwhile, I think Boeing just wants to get, they have, they have orders. Unlike restaurants, they have actual orders, uh, Chinese orders. So they want to make planes. So give them the credit line. Uh, but let's not uh, avoid the vaudeville. There's some just terrific trading in the Senate. <laughs> some of the, I don't know. They're not listening to me. They bought a lot of the hotels. I never liked the hotels on Mad Money. So, you know, they, they bought the Constellation when I told them not to buy Constellation. The rails. I mean, what is this? I mean, what is she doing? She's made some really bad buys. So she had to obviously a Richard Burr. He's but man, that guy's all over the place. He's completely diversified. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 looking good. Right? Yeah, he's he playing it better than Aaron. Uh, yeah, right, better than Aaron. Yeah, yeah, not bad. How yeah. many different trades? What was it? I don't know, man. They're whamma jamma. They've been whamma jammy, and I don't know how they get. Do they get it? it was 30, they don't when they're not Thirty-three trades. Uh, thirty-three trades sold. No new, no new net positions. Um, yeah, I think those guys are going to be on the hot seat today. What were they thinking? I mean, Arnie Sorensen wasn't bullish. A lot of the hotel analysts were even negative. I guess they were maybe they're chartists. Yeah. You think they're chartists, David? I know you like the technicians. Oh, you know me. Yeah, I love a good head and shoulders. Well, uh, I mean, these guys were these guys are head and shoulders. You know what? Some of these guys are doing, David. They're doing cup and handle. I think they're way beyond that. And they're doing cup and handle. Cup and handle. Got that. David. They're using cup and handle. And, and some How about of them are using. One? What's no? They're using the relative strength what's index. What's that one mean? David, yeah. they are in the relative yeah. strength index, and they are buying some of the stocks that you never in a million years would have bought them. But look at this. Senator dumped $1.7 million of stock reassuring public about coronavirus. Intelligence chair Richard Burr. Man, you know what? You got to get <laughs> – you, 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 when you go out there and you say, I'm selling, you know, yeah, maybe you should say, I'm, I'm a little less confident. Maybe don't be so confident. <laughs> I don't know. Speaking of relative strength, guys, I mean, I don't know. I'm not able to swim anymore. I don't know what you guys are doing, but I got to figure some sort of program out. Um, Talking about aerospace, I'm going to for a second just go back to our old world and talk about a potential news story uh, that I can share, at least with you at this point, involving something we would have discussed, certainly in uh, when we were just covering the markets. Aerospace United Technologies, Jim, we've talked a lot about it. The Raytheon deal still waiting to close. I can tell you that people familiar with the discussions with the Department of Justice about approval of that deal say it is getting very close. Approval (laughs) is actually 
uh, near. They are uh, very close to figuring out and having done a divestiture package to allow for the DOJ to give the clearance to the United Technologies Raytheon deal, which, of course, we know once it does close will then result in UTX breaking into a number of companies, Jim. But just for one minute, I wanted to go back as though we were in our, well, you know, time, the time NYC capsule. doing our thing. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, that deal capsule. might be so, time you know, that'd be so big. The, a lot of people were really worried about the Otis part of the deal in the split with, uh, you know, you, mm-hmm. you get pain, you, you, you get the unbelievable aerospace business, you, you get the uh, climate control business, you get the, the um the elevator business, Otis. And a lot of people were really worried that right. the Otis business would be the worst because that's heavily Chinese. But now that the Chinese are back yep. and being business and dominating again, I'll tell you, I want to keep that side. I think you want to keep the, uh, the elevator side because it's China and China yeah. is doing uh, so well. They are. Jim, you, um, you know, as I, as I said at the top, no new reported cases in China. Well, I mean, to the degree you want to believe it, that's up to you. But you did mention the activity in Alibaba as being uh, oh, especially encouraging. What, yeah, that's a good stock. It's kind of their. I mean, look, I'm not being facetious. If China's ordering airplanes, China's ordering food. If there are very few people, and of course, by the way, the Chinese say that the only cases they have are imported cases. Uh, they are uh, not only back, but if they put a lot of stimulus together, then arguably you could say that if we let Boeing go and we let our defense go and we let our oil go, we'll be. It will be. Uh, we'll be a second-rate power versus them because they're coming back so fast. It's not something I want to hear. But if you're only spending a trillion dollars to bring us back, I don't know how you compete, compete against this engine. Uh, it, it is incredible. You, you use martial law, your dictatorship. You basically, who knows what happens if you stepped out of your house when you weren't supposed to. And, but uh, I hate to think that they're the winner and we're the loser because we're a democracy. Uh, certainly the journal op-ed piece that we mentioned earlier said uh, part of the reason they have been able to bounce is because the government uh, was an owner and <laughs> absorbed a lot of the losses. Uh, that's a good point, Jim. Let's get to Eamon Javers, who's got some more on the fiscal front today on the Hill. Hey, Eamon. Yeah, Carl, that's right. I just got off the phone with Larry Lindsay, who, of course, was the National Economic uh, Council director under George W. Bush. And he says that all of the analysis that's out there so far, most of it anyway, is, is missing the key element of this McConnell proposal that just went out uh, last night. So I want to walk you through Larry's analysis because he says that there's a big bazooka in this bill and it's aimed directly at small business employment. He said it, the whole goal here is to keep people on the payrolls, ultimately. So walk through this here. He's talking about Section 1105. This is the so-called Collins-Rubio provision of the bill. He says what that's going to do is provide loans from the Small Business Administration directly to small businesses for the purpose of covering their payroll. He says this will cover employees making up to $100,000 per year, but the loans would be forgiven entirely after four months if those companies don't lay anyone off. That is, free government money to small businesses if you don't lay anybody off after that four-month period. Lindsay says his analysis suggests this could affect up to 80 million workers in this country. It's authorized in the bill up to $300 billion right now. Lindsay says his analysis is if every small business in the country that's eligible takes advantage of this provision in the bill, it could, could be a price tag as high as $1 trillion over a four-month period that's authorized and spelled out uh, in the details of the bill. Now, there is a $10 million cap 
on payroll per firm in there. Uh, so you can't go higher than that 10 million if you've got a big, small business. Uh, this applies to businesses that are 500 employees and less, I'm told. So this is a major job retention element of this McConnell uh, bill. Uh, a lot of people are, are looking through this bill. This is on page 22, section 1105. Uh, haven't really focused on this, but it's a huge number and it's designed entirely to keep small businesses, uh, employees on the payroll. It incentivizes those businesses to take those loans and then to have those loans forgiven after four months if they don't lay anybody off, Carl. Eamon, thank you. And don't go far because uh, we'll rely on you for a lot of information today. Jim, how many aircraft carriers is that? Not enough because loans, we keep thinking what, what uh, Danny Meyer was saying. You know, loans don't work if you're not solving. Let's say you run a business and it's on a shoestring, which is almost all the small, medium-sized business, and you hear loans. What, so what do you do? You take a loan and then you try to reopen and then you owe even more. I mean, it's grants to the workers, grants to the workers, grants to the workers. And they've got to stop with this one-time notion. I mean, I've urged them over and over again, you've got to think bigger. No one is going to look back at this government. And uh, and this president and this and this uh, Congress and say, you know what, boy, did they ever throw too much at that covid problem? No one in the history books is ever going to say that this was not like this is a, 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 an issue that's so much bigger than what they seem to think. So, I mean, it's not like Stalin where he questions how many divisions the pope has, but it is kind of like we had, we need a lot more divisions and. We had an army in 1938 that was smaller than the Romanian army, and obviously we geared up fast because there were people who stood up to the president, stood up to President Roosevelt and said, you were thinking way too small. You were just part of the Navy. Can you imagine someone standing up to the president as General Marshall did and said, you don't know how big this is. We need someone in that White House or someone in the Congress who says, guys, this is a four or five trillion dollar problem. It's too big. Jim, I, I hear what you're saying, but the president's entire experience is in hospitality, travel, tourism. I mean, this virus is, is aimed at his own business as much as it is any other. It's hard to imagine he's clueless about that. No, that's why I'm surprised he isn't saying, you know, we're going to build hospitals. And you see how fast they build a hospital in Wuhan. We're going to build it twice as fast because America's even better than the Chinese. I mean, you know, forget about calling it a virus. Let's just beat them. Let's beat them where it matters. Let's beat them in ingenuity and manufacturing. Let's go to Regeneron and say, what do you really need? Okay, you need a test which shows whether people have already had it and they're immune so you can get their blood. You know, the president's got to be in the front lines. He's got, obviously, he needs to think strategically as people have to be tactically. But there has to be right at the point of recognition that there is no, no limit to how much we can do to help the American worker. And without that confidence, what's going to happen is we're going to see tremendous despair and we're going to go into Ray Dalio mode. I don't want us to go into the Ray Dalio where, where it's like every man for himself, and I'm going to my island. Uh, Jim, quick bit of news before we get to Bob Pisani. Uh, you mentioned the Walmart hiring and the right. bonuses for employees. Now, J.P. Morgan is going to give uh, frontline employees a one-time bonus of $1,000 in two installments. This is Reuters, which has seen a memo. Uh, this is You're basically talking about frontline staff uh, working at a consumer banking branch. We'll keep our eye on that. Right. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Morning, Bob. Good morning, guys. We were trying to hold positive on the Dow. Uh, it hasn't worked so far. Uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, Exxon, Procter & Gamble on the downside. Still a lot of volatility overnight. Remember, we've got a quadruple witching today. But if you look at the S&P futures, we moved again in a 100-point range. It's 1,000 points on the Dow. So 2,500 to about 2,400, a little bit below that. Remember, 2,351, the close, the old December 
2018 closing low. That's sort of the last mental uh, uh, technical level that people are watching. Sectors today, energy, uh, a bright spot early on. Industrials were. Uh, as you can see, none of this is holding, though. Banks are underperforming. Uh, consumer staples have been weak in the last day and a half. That's curious. Uh, utilities, uh, of course, we pointed out yesterday, had a big discussion on this. One of the things that may happen on these bill uh, that they're looking at in the Senate may be moratorium on bill paying, and that includes the ability of utilities uh, to disconnect people who are not able to pay their bills. So that obviously an economic impact there uh, for them as well. If you take a look at uh, some other things that are moving here, the consumer stocks as well, a little bit of weakness there. Uh, remember, these stocks had big run-ups in the last few days, and a lot of people, of course, technically overvalued. Uh, hard to believe in this environment, but you see uh, some people having second thoughts about running up food stocks in this environment. I thought it was very interesting that Virtu, which is one of the biggest market makers in the world, announced their earnings today and announced a new uh, expansion of their borrowing capacity by $450 million. They came out and said uh, this is an extraordinary opportunity uh, to provide valuable liquidity to customers across the global markets. This is a giant market maker saying there's an awful lot of volatility and we're willing uh, to go out there uh, and to put some money out there. Of course, they're involved in market making activities. So uh, this is uh, all, of course, uh, in their favor. But it's very interesting. They want to expand their ability to be out there. Uh, bond ETFs, we had huge outflows from taxable bond funds. Uh, in fact, record outflows recently here. And I just want to point out corporate bonds, very weak this month, down 20%. A lot of investment grade bonds might slip into junk territory. High yield bonds, of course, some concern that there are higher chances of default. But a lot of Discussions yesterday we had with about the muni bonds being down. Remember, you think what's muni bonds got to do with this? But they float the debt for the convention centers, for the transit systems that are all out there that are being affected. So a lot of tentacles to this. Finally, this quadruple witching expiration, which we have four times a year. These are usually the two biggest volume days of the year overall. And this is the quarterly expiration of stock and index futures and options. Uh, usually uh, you get a little bit of movement here at the close. Uh, we get People are offsetting and closing and some of them rolling over into new positions. Uh, and, of course, following week, we usually get a little lower volume. So, Carl, the hope here is that we're going to get a lot of volume, even more than normal today. And hopefully next week things will calm down a little bit. That usually happens, although heaven knows in these kinds of circumstances. Carl, back to you. All right, exactly. All right, Bob, thank you very much. Let's check in with Rick Santelli this morning. Morning, Rick. Good morning, Carl. So many areas. Let's concentrate on what's going on in the sovereign treasury market. Look at a March 13 start. So last Friday to today of 10-year note yields. What's fascinating is at 1%, we're down 14 basis points on the week. But 10s and 30s are unique because they're still up on the week. That's how much movement there was that we settled back from when yields shot up during the middle of this week. We're up four on the week. That we settle at 96. Now, if you look at a month to date of 10s, what's fascinating is, wow, what information. That 54 low close that you see there, that's the all-time forever low close. Of course, that was the 9th and 31 was the intraday low. We're building a little bit of a base, but do keep in mind, not a lot of cushion when you're at 1% and the all-time forever low is minus, or at 54 basis points. Let's look at Boone's. Here's a two-day Boone. Yesterday, their high was minus 14. Why is that fascinating? Open the chart up to May 2019 because their January high that took us back to May 19 was minus 15. Yesterday's intraday low was the highest they've traded. And if you look at September 2018 for the dollar index, 
Well, the ninth was the low, 94.89, took you back to SEP 18. Then you fast forward 10 days to the 19th, and that's a new high, taking you back to January 17. What foreign exchange volatility? Never seen anything like it. Carl, Jim, David, back to you. All right, Rick, we'll see in a little bit. Uh, Jim, let's get stopped trading. Carl, I always like to be helpful to individuals who call in. I'll send her law for her. I don't know if she may be too jammed to call in tonight. But I would let her keep the Citrix. She's up very nicely and that up another three. She killed it getting out of the Exxon. She sold the Exxon at 60. It went down to 33. I would like to take those proceeds and buy Verizon. Why? Because she doesn't have a lot of income coming in on the portfolio. I see, but she gets smoked on Funko. <laughs> Um, Verizon got a 4.7% yield. I, I had the CEO, uh, CEO last night, Hans Vesper. You can tell her I feel very good about that yield. And she does need yield. She does a lot of too many of the. Well, she sold a. Let's just say she sold some suboptimal stocks. So but I would buy Verizon with those. And also, I've got CrowdStrike tonight. Maybe she should use that complement with Citrix, kind of get the at home uh, plays that I've been doing. I got to work on this fella, Burr. I mean,. Jeez, I, I, I don't know. Where to, what show does he watch? Maybe he's watching a different network. He, he doesn't do any of my ideas. Uh, uh, these are senators who did a lot of way jam trading. I'm focused on the country. Uh, but, man, look, it's good that someone's worried about the portfolio. Tongue firmly in cheek, Jim. Uh, well, it's it only is 100. Truly, we got to uh, have someone. There's like 100 of them. Some of them have to be looking at this stuff. I salute them. I think people should also be worried about the portfolios. And at least those people take me seriously. Jim, we'll see you tonight. I also got AMH uh, on. Mad they Money, might, 6 They PM. might like the AMH. They should swap out of that Funko. Just leave it all if they still have any tag ends there. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.